Well, this morning we're going to be looking at James again, James chapter 1, but before we go right to James 1, uh, I wanted to know if you guys were familiar with the term, the Zoom boom. The Zoom boom. I learned a little bit about this week, the Zoom boom. Now, as you know, during COVID, all of a sudden we're all using Zoom. That's just kind of how we had to do things for quite a while, and we're all looking at Faces on the screen, everybody's face. You have to see your own face on there as well. And what happened uh, during COVID as it became popular, people were not only interacting with other people on Zoom, but in seeing their own face, they became, uh, let's say, a little discouraged by it. (laughs) I mean, I'm always discouraged when I look at my face. But to the point where they say a, a condition is Zoom, dysmorphia. Zoom dysmorphia was happening. People not liking how they looked when they see their face on Zoom. And that's not surprising. Your face doesn't look good. You usually have up lighting, and so it looks like there's bags. Your camera is like 12 inches from your face, and so your nose looks bigger than normal. Um, The wrinkles show you got to bend your head down. There's a lot of reasons. You don't look great on Zoom. This is just me, you know. (laughs) You all look fabulous on Zoom, I'm sure. But what happened because of that is what? The cosmetic surgery industry skyrocketed. There was more cosmetic surgeries after people started using Zoom all the time than far surpassed beforehand. And when people said, why are you getting these things done to your face, these facelifts or other procedures, They said, well, I've been seeing myself on Zoom, and I don't like the way I look. And uh, remarkable, remarkable uh, to hear of something like that. So concerned about the way we look. And you know what? It's it's not new. I mean, I think we can all say, oh, wow, that's, that's wild. But boy, a lot of times we all have an undue concern about our appearance, about our beauty and the way we look. Or... Or is it we're concerned how we look to ourselves or what others think about what we look like? I think we do that. Now, we can look at that at the physical beauty and be overly concerned, perhaps, of what others think of how we look. But I think we're overly concerned about what others think of us in general, too, aren't we? So many times we want so desperately, do people think I'm smart Do people think I'm fun to be with? Do they find me interesting? Uh, Do people really think I'm good at what I do? And we have this obsession. At times, we can have an obsession. What do people think about me? And I think that pervades all of our society. And it's in our hearts, too, in the church. And I think we have to fight against that. Now, in the church, we add another element to that. We not only bring in a lot of those, what do the people think about how I look and smart and funny and all those things, but we add, how spiritual do people think I am? How do they others see me as, you know, a really spiritual, a very strong Christian? What is others' perception of, of me? How highly do I rate in the eyes of other people? And while it's right to care about our reputation to some extent, We can't fix the way that others think about us, but we can fix our character. And we can focus on character and trust God for how others think. But this thought of how do others think about me, 
especially spiritually, is what our passage is looking at today. People who want to think themselves religious and want others to think of themselves as religious. But true religion, and we could say true Christianity, is not just the externals. It's not the outward manifestations of religion. It's character. It's your heart. It's what God has done on the inside of you. And that is what James points to today. The necessity of true change inside of us. And while the outward exercises of religion, going to church, serving in ministry, participating in prayer meetings, these things, it's not that they're unimportant, but if they're devoid of a truly transformed life, then they're worthless and they're meaningless. And that's what James tells us today. Well, we've been looking, as you know, James chapter 1, working through the first chapter, our last two verses here of chapter 1, and the different marks of genuine faith. And after the greeting, we saw that genuine faith considers trials as joy, and now we're in the section, genuine faith receives the word. And we'll walk through kind of where we've been. So there's, in this section, five ways that every genuine believer should receive the word. And we've already looked at four of them in the previous verses. So up till now, we've done verses 19 to 25. And let's review this real quickly before we look at 26 to 27, just so we have our context. James writes, and you can read along in your own copy of God's word there. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. And once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So in these verses here, what we have seen is ways we must receive the word. This is all about the word. We see the the term, the word, or the law repeated many times. And the first thing we saw in how genuine faith receives the word, we saw that genuine faith receives the word eagerly. We're quick to hear slow to speak. We, we want to receive the word, and that should be true of all of us, wanting more of God's word and hearing about the Chinese Bible study toolbox and so many believers there wanting to receive the word. Well, that is, that is a mark of a true believer. They're anxious to receive the word, very excited to receive the word. Secondly, we saw, and this was in verse 21, the first part of 21, we need to receive the word purely, We need to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. To receive the word purely, we have to set aside our own self-righteousness and pride as we come to God's word. We need to set aside the sin in our life as we look to what God's word tells us how we should honor him. We saw then that genuine faith receives the word humbly. Humbly. It says, in humility receive the word implanted. And how necessary it is to come to God's word saying, you know what, I need to hear what God has to say. 
I need to obey what God has. I don't stand in judgment of God's word. It stands in judgment of me. And I need to come to the word with humility. Fourth, we saw, and this is what we did a couple weeks ago, is to receive the word actively. And in that passage, we saw a command, an illustration, and a promise. And the key phrase in that section, 22 to 25, says become a doer of the word. Don't merely be a hearer, but you need to be a doer of the word. The active listening that is praised by James is followed up with, needs must be followed up with active obedience as well. Merely hearing God's word without applying it is not characteristic of genuine faith. Instead, it's a characteristic of someone who's self-deceived. Someone who knows a lot and does not live it may think that they are doing just fine. May think that they have faith. In fact, if they're a hearer of the word, this is probably someone who's a regular attender at church. But if their life is not changed, they are self-deluded. And this is a real danger that James warns against. It's the same danger that Jesus warned against, the danger of the man who built his house upon the sand instead of on the rock. The one who heard the words of Christ and did not act on them was that man built on the sand. And what happened when the floods came? There was utter destruction. So we've seen then so far four different ways that genuine faith receives the word. And after speaking of how you cannot be merely here without a doer, he's now going to warn against, in verses 26 to 27, of being merely a religious doer without a true change in character. We may come off of verses 22 to 25 and say, okay, I'll be a doer of the word, I'll be at church, I'll go to the, the prayer meetings, I'll, I'll read my Bible on a daily basis, I'll do all these religious things, I'm a doer of the word. Well, James says those things are not bad. Those are okay. Just as being a hearer is not bad. But if you're merely a hearer, or if you're merely a religious doer, without a true change in character, then just like the merely hearer, you are also self-deceived. And that's what we're going to look at today. And he's going to show us in this passage that genuine faith also receives the word religiously. And he uses that term a number of times, religion. Well, we need to define that. Before we talk about what does it mean to receive the word religiously, what is religion? What is talked about in this context? Well, religious, that word, the Greek word used here, translated religious, this is the only time it's found in Scripture. And the word religion is found two other times. So not not a lot of times in Scripture. The two other times the word religion is found, one of them is in Acts 26.5. And that's where Paul is standing before King Agrippa in his testimony and how before he met Christ, he said, I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Talking about Judaism, about being a Pharisee. The other time this word is used, it's actually translated worship in the New American Standard Version, but Paul warned against the sinful practice of worship or the sinful practice of religion of angels is what he warns against. So those are the only other... Only other times the word religion is used. Well, you can imagine as we see the word religion so infrequently used, and we look at those two times, we get a pretty low view of the word religion, don't we? I think, okay, well, religion, probably not a good thing if these are the two places it's used. But we got to look at these uses here in James as well. 
Now, another common thing you've probably heard, I know I have heard it many times, I don't have a religion, I have a relationship. Maybe you've seen it on a t-shirt or cross-stitched on a pillow or some cool Christian rapper saying this or something like that. I don't have a religion, I have a relationship. Well, that sounds really profound, doesn't it? What does it mean? What does it mean when someone says that? Well, it can mean a couple different things depending on who's saying it. Someone may be saying something like, religion is man's attempt to earn salvation. Religion is a system of good things you must do for God to love you. And therefore, that's not what I believe in. I believe in a relationship with Jesus Christ and that knowing him through faith alone is how I'm saved. So I believe in a relationship, not a religion. Well, if that's what is meant, well, sure. Someone else may use it in this way. And I saw actually a celebrity quote that said exactly this. I believe in God, and that's a personal relationship I have, but I'm not religious in any way. Well, this person is saying, and this sentiment is said other times, is, yeah, I'm, I'm religious, and he, that word's used for like spiritual. I just don't belong to a church. Uh, I don't follow the Bible or anything like that. But, oh, yes, I'm, you know, I have a relationship with God. Now, if we're saying relationship, not religion, in that sense of the term, well, no, we can't get on board with that. We can't say that we are to throw away going to church, reading the Bible, because those are the common graces that God has given us in order to grow. So that phrase then, you call it a religion, I call it a relationship, or seeing a contrast, there's not the most helpful thing to make. And certainly, as we look at James 1 here, we'll see James uses this word religion in a much more positive way. And let's look at it here in verses 26 to 27. How does he use the word religion or religious? James writes, verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So James speaks of if we think we are religious and what is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God. Well, then religion here, what we see in this passage, how James is using it is religion refers to the externals or the outward practices of worship. Those things that I mentioned, going to church, um, going to Bible study, uh, doing these things are, are the externals, baptism, communion. These are external things. And these things are not bad, are they? Certainly not. We can find scripture telling us that we should be doing these things. So religion, as James is speaking of it here, he's not speaking of it in a negative way. So we need to understand that. What he is saying is bad is to have a religion to do those outward actions, but there's no real heart change. That all you're doing is outward doing, is religious doing, is, is the stuff that you do so others make you think you're spiritual. If that's what your religion or your Christianity consists of, doing, being around Christians, doing Christian things, that's not honoring to God. And what James tells us here is that religion is worthless. What true religion is, he's going to show us three virtues that demonstrates 
how to practice God-pleasing religion. We're going to see three virtues that a true Christian will have in his life to show that it's not just the outward, not just a concern of what others think how religious we are, but that there's true change in our life. So these three virtues of a true believer that we're going to see in these two verses here are these. A true believer, in verse 26, controls the tongue. Second, we'll see that a true believer cares for the distressed. And third, a true believer conducts himself in holiness. And now what James is doing here is not giving a full comprehensive look at everything that a true Christian believes or that a true Christian does. That's not his purpose here, is to give a comprehensive picture of a Christian. But what he is doing is saying, if these things aren't there, then you need to doubt whether you truly know Christ. These things must be there. If you're devoid of these three three things, then it's a huge issue. John Calvin, along those lines, said this, James is not define generally what religion is, but reminds us that religion without the things he mentions is nothing. So as we look at this passage here, we need to examine ourselves. Are these things true in our lives? I will say this. You guys are here this morning. Praise God. You're doing religious things. You went uh, probably to first service and now you're here. That's fantastic. That's great. You are have outward religion, is there also genuine character that goes along with that? And I think that's something we need to examine ourselves through these principles that James gives. So let's start looking at these. The first one then, verse 26, is this. A true believer controls his tongue. Again, James writes, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. So he starts off this phrase by saying, if anyone thinks himself to be religious. And again, this isn't talking about someone in the world. This is talking about someone that's in the church. Someone who is doing things in the church is who he's speaking to. And uh, the way it's phrased there, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, he's assuming there are people who think this and yet are missing these essential qualities of the Christian life. Well, if anyone thinks this, they must bridle their tongue. If someone thinks himself to religion, they not bridle his tongue. That's an absolute essential. And what is a bridle? Well, I got a real cute horse picture here to help, to help us. A bridle is what they put on the horse's head, right? To control it, to tell it to go right and left, to tell it what to do. And that is exactly what he's pointing to, is that just as a horse is kept in check, through a bridle. So the mouth must be kept in check by a true believer. So just, we, we see this issue and this concern uh, all through Scripture, holding your tongue in check. In the Psalms, a number of times, the psalmist points out the need to do this because it is a temptation for all of us as believers to let our mouth run away from us. Psalm 39.1 I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. Psalm 141.3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And Psalm 34.13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. 
control of the tongue is a universal challenge. And James is going to talk a lot more about the control of the tongue in chapter 3. So we won't look uh, at chapter 3 today because we'll have the opportunity down the road. But James recognizes how dangerous the tongue is. And we need to remember that as well. If we aren't controlling our tongue, as with the bridle, how it controls a horse, then our external religion really means nothing, is what James is saying. Now, to control your speech, what he's saying here is not just to say it's all the external, but James knows it's from the heart, is from the mouth. What the mouth speaks comes from the heart. And this is what Jesus has said. For the mouth speaks out from that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. A person who does not bridle his tongue, it's not as if James is saying if we all went mute, we would be great Christians. You never say anything, okay, then you have true religion. He's saying, he doesn't say silence the tongue, he says bridle the tongue. We need to keep it in check. Are we saying words that build up and encourage, or are we saying words that tear down? Now, as we think of ways that the, sin, that the tongue is destructive and sin that comes out, we, we think, of course, of cursing, swearing, uh, deception, and lies, the filthy speech that you hear in the word, world all the time, sexual innuendo that's done. And these are marks of a person who has not bridled his tongue. But these marks, I think those in the church are pretty careful of. Not using swear words, at least not at church, I don't hear it. But probably not the main issue, not to say that it's not, for some who claim to be religious who have filthy speech. But there are other ways that we lose hold of the reins, that we don't hold on to the bridle, where we fail as well, I think. What are what are some of these? And I think these may hit a little closer to home. Complaining. Complaining. Unless you brought your tongue, it's so easy for complaint to come out of your mouth. At least it is for me. When things don't go the way we want, it's so easy to speak out of, in complaint. And a complaining mouth comes from a discontented heart. It comes from a heart that is not thankful for all that God has done. So complaining, we must bridle our tongue from complaining. Secondly, boasting. How easily boasting comes from our lips as well. It's so easy to point out the things we've done in service to others for the wise decisions we've made and just to make sure others know that we have a certain level of knowledge. We can always find something to boast about. I can have no legitimate reason to boast and yet find myself boasting of the most inane things. How easy it is to boast because of our pride. But as Proverbs 27.2 reminds us, praise should come from another man's mouth and not our own. Never let praise for yourself come from your mouth. Let it always be in praise of others and, of course, praise of God. Complaining, boasting. How about gossiping? Probably not an issue here. Um, but isn't it tempting to always want to be the one with that juicy piece of information? To be in the know and share things that are really none of your business? Gossip is one of those, as Jerry Bridges might call, respectable sins. It's 
something that we might do and not feel bad about it. But it is dishonoring to God. And if our life is characterized by gossip, then we got a question. Do we have the genuine faith, genuine religion that James speaks of? Judging and criticizing others. How often are we doing this? Pointing out other people's faults, which is so great because it makes you look better in comparison, doesn't it? It's so tempting to be doing that. And yet we need to bridle our tongues. When we are doing that, we must recognize that's coming from a heart of pride. And we need to repent of that pride in our hearts. Slandering. And that's another, in a sense, that's a perfect combination there of gossip and criticism. Here you get all the wonders of criticism and you can throw gossip in as well, all in one package. <laughs> to say negative things about others so they don't, they're not around. If they're around, they might correct you with facts and things like that. But when they're not around, hey. But God hates a slander. No unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, this list is challenging, isn't it? This is difficult. We must, though, bridle our tongue. We must control our tongue. Have that self-control. And the place to do battle, first and foremost, again, is the heart. Am I humble? Am I thankful? Am I loving others? If we do the battle there, then the words that come out will be honoring to God. Well, James says we must bridle our tongues, and he says uh, if he does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart. So here we see that a person who does not control his tongue is only deceiving himself. And the word deceive means to cheat or to trick, and it's different from the word that's used earlier up in verse 22 to talk about the self-deluded person. This is actually a different uh, Greek word that's used here. And this one has more the idea of having a faulty evaluation of something. And this is where we tell ourselves, hey, this is how it is, but it's really not that way. And if we continue on calling ourselves religious but not bridling a tongue, that we are deceiving ourselves. And it's, again, easy to give ourselves a pass and find justification for it. Because, hey, you're, you know, you're a member of Grace Church and you need to share this. Or you're a seminary student and it's ministry. Or you're a pastor and so it's okay to criticize others. You know, it applies just as much uh, to every one of us. And certainly one that I've uh, had to do some hard evaluation as well. So bridle our tongues, a true believer will bridle their tongue. Secondly, a true believer cares for the distressed. After showing us what is worthless religion, in verse 26, a man who doesn't bridle his tongue, his religion is worthless. Now he, James contrasts that with pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God. So here we see James is saying religion is a good thing. The externals are a good thing if it's combined with character. And he's going to look at two specific things in this verse, verse 27. And one is caring for the distressed, and the second is seeking holiness. 
But he talks about pure and undefiled religion here. Pure means that is what it's intrinsically free from moral pollution or corruption. So it is pure, and we use the term pure as snow. When snow falls, it is perfectly clean and white as it comes down. He combines that with the term undefiled, and undefiled means unpolluted, not stained in any way by moral evil. And so you could see how these two go together. It's it's a religion that is perfectly clean and also unstained. It comes, it starts clean and it stays clean. This is what is pure religion before the sight of God. And really, isn't that what matters? Not what do other people think, but what is the religion that God is pleased by? What is the religion that God wants from us? What should be true? And he mentions here to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Now, we could say to visit. Well, great, I'll just swing by and visit and be gone. It's not what visit means here. And I think we know that visit means to help in some way, to come to someone's aid when they're in distress. And in the ancient times, the two most needy classes of people were, were these, was the orphan and the widow. And the Old Testament is replete with references about orphans and widows and the care that they should receive. We see that God has a special care for orphans and widows. Deuteronomy 10.18, speaking of God, says he executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Psalm 68.5, a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. Our God cares for the orphan and the widow. And in Psalm 68, 5 there, I think it's interesting that he calls himself a father of the fatherless. And as we look at this passage in James, verse 27, it's, it's saying, what is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and our father is to care for orphans and widows. We're reminded, even in this verse, that God is our father and of his care for the orphan. We also see in the Old Testament, those who are God's people are to care for the orphan and the widow. Isaiah 1.17 speaks of this. And I think that the whole section in Isaiah there parallels our passage in James. So let me read, uh, and if you have your Bibles, you can open them. Uh, verse 11, Psalm 1, verse 11 through 17, where the Lord is rebuking Israel. And he says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Here he's saying, God is saying, Israel, do not bring your sacrifice. Do not bring your religion to me. And why is that? It's because they haven't done what it said in verses 16 to 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, 
defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. These were the types of ministries, the types of acts that every Israelite were to do, were to care for the orphan and the widow. This is God's heart towards the needy, and it should be his people's heart as well. And when the wicked leaders of Israel failed to care for the orphan and the widow, God brought judgment upon them. They have treated father and mother lightly within you, the alien they have oppressed in your midst, and the fatherless and the widow they have wronged in you. Our God has compassion on those in need. Our God cares for those who are destitute. For those who can't repay, that should then mark his children as well, shouldn't it? We should be like God in this very same way. Now, it's easy to be generous to our friends, especially uh, friends who you have fun with, friends you know who can do something back for you at a later time. That's, that's an easy thing, and you know what? The world does that. Do we help those? Do you help those who cannot repay to those who are genuinely needy? And we, in this verse, talks about the orphan and the widow. And I think in our society, we can include those for sure. But the list can be added. It's not only those. We can look at perhaps someone who is disabled. Are we helping those people? Are we helping uh, the poor, the immigrant? Who Are we helping those who are in need? We can very easily just stay in our externals of religion without caring for the world. And we always got to check, am I doing that? Evaluate your own life. How, how have you been helping the needy? Someone who can't repay. Maybe someone who's sick. Maybe someone who is um, grieving in some way. Maybe someone who has no food or, or in some way has a need. Now, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost your time for sure. It may even cost you your money. But this is what true Christians do. They help those and they care for those. Now, as you know, in, in missions, which I'm involved in, a lot of talk is, is made about, okay, is this, is this what missions is about? Are we to go to the world and help those who have needs to uh, dig wells, uh, to help in poverty in places, to help bring justice in other countries? Are missionaries sent to meet the needs of those in distress? Or is missions to bring the gospel to the world? Well, I, I think as we look at this and we look at this passage, we're not talking about missions in this passage. We're talking about the responsibility of every single Christian. And it would be easy to say, you know what, missionaries should do that. They should go help needy people. But that's easy to pass the burden off to them. That's every single one of us, should, what we all should be doing. The mission of the church, what God has sent believers out as missionaries to do, is to proclaim the gospel, to plant and strengthen healthy churches, and in those churches should be Christians who are meeting the needs around them, just as we should be meeting the needs of those around us right here. So it's not the mission of the church to meet the needs of the poor, the orphan, the widow. It's the mission of every single Christian. It's the mission individually of us to be caring for people. And we can't lament that maybe it's not being done by an organization, but how are you personally, those in your life, 
those in our group? Are we meeting those needs? That is the mark of a true Christian, and that's the kind of character that goes beyond just the religious uh, externals that someone may claim. Well, that's not the last thing that James talks about. He speaks of one more area, that a true believer conducts himself in holiness. And we see that at the end of verse 27, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. To care for the needy is important, but it must be coupled with a life that is not stained by sin. The verb here is to keep oneself, means to watch over, to guard. We need to guard our life, like, like guarding a prisoner is how the word is used elsewhere. We need to guard our life to keep it unstained. And the idea there is spotless, pure, without fault. And it, it's not a statement about ritual cleanliness, but about person's character again. Well, what does it mean, though, to keep oneself unstained by the world? The world, the word used here is cosmos. And as it is frequently in Scripture, it's not referring to the planet, so to speak, but it's referring to fallen mankind and ungodly values and philosophies of the world around us. We need to be unstained by the sinfulness in the world, is what James is pointing to and what we see elsewhere. Now, how do we do this? How do we keep ourselves unstained by the world? What what does this look like practically? Say, oh, okay, I keep myself unstained by the world. What does that mean? Well, first of all, what doesn't it mean? It doesn't mean that we avoid all contact with unbelievers. It's like, oh, I'll keep myself unstained by the world. We'll all go to a remote place in Montana, form a little commune, just a little Christian, a holy huddle, so to speak, and, and there we go. We'll keep ourselves unstained by the world. That's not, that's not what uh, the scripture is talking about. It also doesn't mean, in our context, I only hang around Christians. In fact, I only hang around Christians from Grace Church. That's how unstained I am. No, that is not what this is talking about. It is not to keep unstained that you keep yourself from ever interacting with an unbeliever. Jesus said very clearly, I do not, he's, in his prayer to the Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We are not to seek to be apart from the world. That's not our goal. We need to reach the world with the gospel of Christ. We need to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to a world that desperately needs him. You have people on your street, you have family members, you have coworkers that will stand before God in judgment one day because they are standing in rebellion against him, because they are pursuing their own sin and not seeking the forgiveness that only comes through Christ. We don't keep ourselves unstained by stop talking with them or hanging around them. No, we need to reach them. We need to be spending time with them. So what is it then to keep yourself unstained? Well, the points again to the heart. It's, the key is not to love the world. Is Is your heart being stained by the world? Are your desires, your passions, your actions and motives, are those stained by the world? And 1 John 2, 15 to 17 speaks to this, I think, so clearly. John writes, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride in life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. If you want to keep yourself unstained by the world, then guard your heart. What do you love? Do you love the worldly things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life? Are you seeking to elevate yourself? Are you seeking to satisfy your every desire? That is how you become stained by the world is because you love the things the world loves. You're entertained by the things that the world is entertained by. We're to be different. We're to be different in how we think and how we live and not to be ashamed of that. But it's not different in such a way we're trying to create distance, but different because we're seeking to be after Christ and we want to bring others with us. Bring others with us to our Savior. I appreciate what Charles Spurgeon in his sermon on this passage wrote on what it looks like to have a true religion and to live in holiness as this speaks of. And he writes this, When you and I live daily with the fear of God before our eyes, in the presence of men of the world who care not whether there is a God or no, then we are manifesting pure and undefiled religion. When we judge all our conduct by thinking how it will appear before the sight of God, when assailed by temptation, we say to ourselves, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? When we keep ourselves apart from every evil thing that might fascinate and entice us, saying, so did not I because of the fear of God, this is true worship, quite as real worship as the hymns we sing and the prayers that we offer. Having a heart that always fears God and wants to honor him. This is the worship. This is the true religion that must be there. It's a, it's a, it's a religion that goes all the way to the heart, not merely the externals. Continue to do the externals. Please keep coming to church. Read your Bibles. Come to Bible study. But evaluate your own heart. Am I putting a bridle on my mouth? Are my words honoring to Christ? Because if they're not, maybe something's wrong with my heart. Am I caring for those in distress? The orphan, the widow, the needy people around us? Or do I turn a blind eye to that? Do I conduct myself in holiness? Am I always seeking to fear God in everything. These are the marks of a true religion that we need to seek. Well, the application then is, is clear. Ask yourself these questions. Is my tongue in control? Study what the Proverbs say about the tongue. I encourage you, if you've not done that before, spend time in Proverbs. Write down every reference which talks about the tongue. It's very instructive. And evaluate your speech on a regular basis. I challenge you to do this. Ask your spouse or a close friend and say, how am I failing in bridling my tongue? What types of speech have you heard me speak that don't honor God? Because I want to repent of those things. When you ask that question, be ready for the response. Sometimes it hurts. Uh, actually, your spouse will have an answer, and maybe pretty quickly. It's like, oh, I can tell you exactly where you're sinning with your mouth. So be humble enough for, for that answer when it comes. And continue to pray that God be honored with your speech. And remember, deal with the heart and the root of that speech. But also ask yourself, am I seeking to meet the needs of others? 
Galatians 6.10 reminds us, So while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What can you do to make structural changes in your life so that you are more faithfully caring for the needy? And that doesn't just mean, well, okay, I'll, I'll write a check each month to this organization. But personally, are you reaching out to people? There are needs here at this church. There's the homebound list is one place to look. Uh, there are other people in, in our group that are suffering from sickness and need help. People who can't pay you back, but that's the point. What can you do for them? And thirdly, ask yourself, do I live as in the world but not of it? Does your life look different than the world around you? Are you indistinguishable from those around you? Are you entertained by the same things? Or is your heart different? Do you live with the fear of God always before your eyes? You're not to remove yourself from the world, but to live in the world, pointing them to a Savior, to look different as you're in the world so that you can point them to the one that can change their lives as well. This is true religion that is pointed to here and something we always need to strive for and always need to evaluate our own hearts in because it's so easy to fall short. But thanks be to God, he forgives and he can change us if we simply humble ourselves and repent before him. Well, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these words from James, from your word. These are your words. These are from the Holy Spirit who had these words put on paper. And Lord, this is what you look for. This is what is pure and undefiled in your sight. And yet, how easy it is to see our own failings in these areas. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here that their whole lives are marked by an emptiness or failing in all these areas, that they would evaluate whether they even know you, have come to love you, and have been washed by the blood of Christ. And Lord, for those who do know you but find themselves failing in any one of these or, or many of them, may we each be quick to repent, Lord, to put off the filthiness, all that remains of wickedness, and that we would put on the right living that you would have us, Lord, that you may receive the glory in our lives, that we might be a light to the world. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.